Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Right, here we go. What you think about Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you liked our intro music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dora, and you can pick it up on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal here is to raise all voices, big and small, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, to advocates and researchers and more. And today we're having a live show, so you can join the conversation if you'd like by calling in to 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our listeners. You guys are amazing by spreading the world the word around the world of our work here. So I hope you continue to like, click, and share what we're doing because it's all about building a sense of community, collaboration, and comfort so that we can win this battle against Alzheimer's and all the other forms of dementia. Today, our talk is going to be a conversation with two researchers, and it's going to be all about hope in the arena of uh, Alzheimer's disease. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. But before I go there, I always like to mention that our shows are all archived. We've been doing this since 2011. And so our next show on Thursday is going to be with Valerie, who is actually diagnosed with dementia. I think you're going to find that really informative. And a couple of our past recent shows, uh, we had Maria's Place on, which is all about activities and engagement that is free. Um, We talked about smart living and estate planning with Catherine uh, Hodder. We talked with MD VIP on their brain health quiz and um, so many more. Like I said, everything is archived in there to grasp when you need it. I also want to let people know with memory cafes, a lot of them have not converted to virtual, but Arthur's Memory Cafe that I do here in Minnesota, uh, we meet on the second and the fourth uh, Wednesday of each month at one o'clock, and anyone around the world is invited to join us. Those are for people with dementia as well as their care partner. You can find more information on our um, on our Facebook page regarding that, or feel free just to reach out to me directly. And so that'll be this Wednesday, uh, tomorrow, the 14th. And then Artist Way um, in Minnesota is going to is starting a memory cafe. We've done one already, but they are going to do theirs on the third Wednesday of each month from one to two. And again, you can find more information. Um, on that, or you can call them directly to register at 
2000506. And let's see, we've got a couple of quizzes I want to tell you about. The first is a brain health quiz with uh, MDVIP. It's a, it's a really interesting uh, healthy brain survey. And I would highly recommend you take that. You can find both of these at alzheimerspeaks.com right on our homepage. The second was developed by a research uh, student in New Zealand um, by the name of Chantel Horn. And her study, her survey that she's doing is about dementia caregiving burnout, which uh, again, both of these are short, they're easy to do. And then of course, I wanna give a shout out to Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O Health, because they're still allowing people during COVID to download two of their apps. One is called Music First and the other is called Coral Faith. And then of course the Memory Cafe, if you're looking for any other Memory Cafes, just go to memorycafedirectory.com. And if you go to Cafe Connect, that will bring you to all the virtual, all the virtual cafes. So let's hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and then we'll come back and talk with our guests. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the foot bar walker. And again, I can endorse that personally. I've seen it, touched it, and I um, have seen it in action, and it's absolutely fabulous. So I highly recommend it myself. Now, today we're going to be talking about um, research uh, and giving you hope, and we're going to give you some updates on what Immune Bio and Amica are both doing. So let me introduce you first to uh, Dr. C.J. Barnum. He, who is the Vice President and Head of Neuroscience at Immune Bio, Inc. Uh, he is a neuroimmunologist um, with a PhD in neuroscience uh, from Brighton University, and he has a broad experience across uh, neurodegenerative disease and psychiatric diseases, uh, holding multiple positions in both academia and uh, industry abroad. His focus has been on translating uh, inflammation therapies into actual clinical treatments for neurological disease and using biomarkers to direct that, um, that approach. So uh, welcome, CJ. How are you doing today? Hi, Lori. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm I'm excited to have you have you with us. Um, I'm just going to ask you really quick before I introduce your your sidekick here. Um, if you have been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends, 
Yeah, so it's a great question. And, in fact, um, you know, I think all of us have to some degree. I've been relatively fortunate um, in the sense that I have not had a direct family member impacted recently. But I do have some very close friends who have family members impacted. And I can tell you the, the struggle is just it's, it's awful to watch. And, it, you know, we are just pedaling as fast as we can to try to get therapies to treat this disease. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I'm going to put you on hold a second and um, introduce Dr. Max uh, Decado, and hopefully I'm not uh, crucifying his name too bad. He is an international leader in medical imaging and diffusion MRI acquisition, reconstruction, visualization, and processing in many clinical applications. Um, Max holds a PhD from uh, I-N-R-I-A, um, and he has a postdoctorate fellow in, uh, at the NeuroSpin in Paris in computer science and neuroimaging, and he is also the CSO of Amica. And so we're just thrilled to, to have him with us. He is, also serves as a full pro- professor of computer science at the University of Sherbrooke in Canada, and has a research chair in the neuroinformatics uh, uh, area there. So uh, welcome, Max. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, Laurie. It's a pleasure to be here. And and please go ahead and say your name properly if I really crucified it. <laughs> you won't embarrass me. <laughs> oh, my, uh, no, no, my name is a francophone name. Like I said, it means many wine hills, but uh, it, we say Decoto, Maxime Decoto. But it, oh. it, Max is fine. Okay, sounds good. Now, Max, I want to ask you as well if you've been personally touched by dementia in your circle of uh, family and friends. Yes, I have actually two uh, great grandmother or uh, uncles. I've suffered from Alzheimer's disease, so uh, I've seen it around me and around my family and how devastating it can be. And uh, a bit related, but my, my mom had multiple sclerosis, which which is not Alzheimer's disease or dementia, but it is a neurodegenerative disease. So a lot of what we're going to say today uh, can go beyond dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and so, yeah, I, it's been around my family and my, and my surroundings. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to go ahead and start out with uh, CJ. And just so everybody knows, uh, they've given me permission to call them by their first name. So we're just going to be a little informal uh, here. So CJ, can you tell us a little bit about the work being done at Immune Bio uh, to fight Alzheimer's and dementia? Yeah, thanks, Lori. So we have a little bit of a different approach than many of your uh, listeners may be familiar with. We actually view the disease differently than the neurologist that you might see. So right now, the way the field views Alzheimer's as a neurological disease, we actually think the disease is an immunological disease that has symptoms of neurologic origin, right? So, uh, uh, So it starts with a dysfunctional immune system and then it leads to these symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And so our approach is to target the, neuro, the inflammatory dysfunction that we believe is underlying Alzheimer's disease in many patients. Okay, wonderful. Now you have a trial going on right now. Can you tell us what phase that is? 
and um, who's involved, who's the target there, and what your findings are. Yeah, great question. Thank you. So we have a phase one studies. So these are the, the, the very early studies. What we're trying to do is demonstrate proof of biology. And what I mean by that is to make sure that our target is that we're actually hitting our target. And again, we're targeting inflammation. So what we're looking at is whether or not we can reduce inflammation in these patients. And what's interesting from our point of view, and I think what's, what's different than what you, what at least historically has been done in clinical trials in Alzheimer's, is we're using biomarkers to select patients. So our thought process is pretty simple. If you're targeting inflammation, your patients should have some evidence of inflammation. And so that's exactly what we do. So we are looking for patients that have Alzheimer's disease and biomarkers of inflammation. And one of the unique ways in which we have approached this is we've tried to make it clinically translatable. So we're not using very uh, uh, research-oriented or, or, or very tricky inflammatory biomarkers. We're using biomarkers that are done routinely at labs around the world. So specifically what we're looking at is if patients have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and they have a, uh, an increase in a, in a protein called C-reactive protein, which many of your patients may be familiar with. It's one of the panels that is done at the doctor's office all the time, which is a general broad marker of inflammation, then patients are enrolled in that study. And at this state, we're not, stage, we're not looking to distinguish between mild, moderate, or severe patients because, again, what we're looking at is to show that we can, uh, we can see a reduction in neuroinflammation. Okay, so um, so is it just strictly people with uh, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's? No, nothing Lewy body, vascular, um, any other types of dementia. Correct. So at this stage, we are selecting patients based on a clinical diagnosis and not a biological do- diagnosis. So the extent to which patients may have. Uh, um, uh, you know, Lewy bodies or, or any of these other pathological um, uh, symptoms uh, is not something we're exploring in detail at this point. So it's just a clinical diagnosis. So I expect there will be some patients in the trial that may not have full Alzheimer's and may have some other pathologies as well. Okay. Okay, yeah, because I know a lot of times that things switch, you know, <laughs> as the disease progresses and and as uh, technology and our, our doctors out there get more sophisticated and, and knowledgeable with things as well. So um, whereabouts are you at with this clinical study? Is it, is it closed and you're just, you know, wrapping up your, your research, or is it still an open study, this phase one that you're doing? Yes, yeah, so we are in the process of finalizing the study. As you might imagine, um, uh, you know, coronavirus has has uh, stalled it a little bit, but we expect to be completed with the study by the end of the year. Um, And from then, we anticipate opening a phase two study um, sometime mid-next year, um, and hopefully this will be in the United States. Right now, our study is being done in Australia, and uh, and we expect to bring that to the United States for, for, for phase two. Okay. 
Sounds great. I'm just going to pull Max in um, and see if he's got any any comments regarding what you've um, what you've stated or anything that you want to toss in there, Max. No, this is pretty complete. I'm more on the technology side on how uh, we're about to image this information. So I guess we'll be discussing this ish, this this later. Okay. Well, and later is coming right now. So um, <laughs> what, I, what I want you to first tell us a little bit about um, Amika. Um, who are you? What are you doing? And why are you there? <laughs> yeah. So Amika is uh, is a. Uh, it used to be a startup. Now it's uh, it's a company of thirteen employees based in Canada, Sherbrooke. You mentioned Sherbrooke, which is about an hour away from Vermont and four hours away from Boston. Uh, where uh, there's a great university, and this is where I, I started my lab. And part of the technology from my lab has, has gone uh, and spun off into INICA. And, and so I did my whole PhD and most of my research career working on brain imaging and finding uh, technology, and especially a non-invasive technology, just based on MRI. Uh, so MRI is magnetic resonance imaging, that, that usual uh, kind of tunnel machine that people have seen on the news, and use this MRI machine to try to non-invasively image brain tissue and brain microstructure to, to try to provide what I like to call like a virtual dissection of the brain without having to open up the brain and take tissue and biopsies and put that under the microscope. Uh, we're developing a technology that's able to image tissue and quantify what's going on. So we can then work with uh, companies like Immune Bio and, and see what is the effect of a drug or what is the effect of a disease or, uh, or, or anything on, on brain tissue. And in particular, white matter. So Imika is really um, specialized into matter imaging at the service of pharmaceutical trial and biotechnology uh, to provide cutting-edge solution to quantify uh, white matter tissue. Okay. Well, I love that it's non-invasive. Um, I mean, everyone's thrilled to hear that, to not have to go under yeah. the knife and, and be able to get that, that uh, like you said, virtual imaging at all different angles to really see what's going on. One question I have for you, though, have you run into, because I've heard this from uh, not just people with dementia, but but a lot of people with dementia, where they they're just not comfortable going into the tube, um, you know, to to have that imaging done um, in order to still get um, valid uh, pictures of all this. Can somebody be sedated to go in uh, to to the machine? And uh, I believe I, this is unethical. Uh, I don't think we do this. Okay. Uh, we may do so uh, under very special circumstances, maybe maybe for certain Alzheimer's patients because they, they're scared they're going to be moving or have a, an anxiety attack in that tube. Uh, mm -hmm. It's true that it is a, a pretty tight tube and can be a bit claustrophobic when you're in there, but uh, usually we don't have that many issues with the actual imaging inside the tube. Um, okay. People, people kind of get used to it and, and, you know, trust that what we are imaging is actually worth a lot. So they, they concentrate and we, we try to maintain our sequences or the, the, the exam quite short 
to to spend as least amount of time as possible inside the tube. So it's usually, you know, in between ten to twenty minutes. Okay. Uh, for I, yeah. for clinical trials. Okay. I uh, the reason I asked that is you know my mom um, had some MRIs done and it had nothing to do with her dementia. She was in a car accident, had a brain uh, brain bleed. And um, they needed to sedate her in order to keep her still because she's very claustrophobic. And so, and I've just heard that from other people or the pinging noise. I don't know if that still exists um, that happens during the MRI. It's noisy. It Uh, is noisy. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard some people have have used uh, like earplugs so that they don't hear that pinging. Um, Other people with dementia have asked about could they use like a headset? And I, I don't know what what could be used or what might interfere with the whole whole technology. That's why I'm asking these these questions. Well, if I may just complete my answer, but this is done by default. So head plugs, uh, earphones, and also a lot of cushions are placed around the head mm-hmm. just to try to attenuate these these sounds. Uh, so it's much less noisy. Uh, usually, we can also put music. We can put a little you know, soft music to try to calm people down. So I know that even in, when, when we do controls or participants that don't have any disease, we, we usually use these tricks as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so, great, great yeah. idea. This helps. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that that, that that is okay and doesn't interfere. And I know that so many people, um, you know, they want to push research forward and they will, they will fight tooth and nail to be able to be part of these studies, um, even if it's uncomfortable for them because they think this is really important information for, for us to gain uh, for, uh, for the future of the disease and stuff. Now, a lot of people might not know what white matter is, so I'm going to have you just explain that if you wouldn't mind um, for us, Max. Yeah. So I'll try to give you a kind of an image or a mental picture. So so the the cell that's critical for the nervous uh, system is the neuron. And the neuron lives in gray matter. So I think people have heard about gray matter. And gray matter is mostly out of on the outskirts of your brain. And so I like to compare the neuron to, uh, let's say, our cities. So the big cities would be the little neurons everywhere spread out in our brain and and what connects these neurons together is the white matter it's the axons if you want if you wish the roads in between the cities or the wiring diagram of our brain that that connect different neurons together and that assure transmission of information electrical information through the brain and so this is incredibly complicated um we, we estimate that we have more or less 85 billion neurons. This is huge. And about 100,000 miles of white matter. That is, you know, axons and wires connecting different neurons together. Uh, and so this is the white matter. It's, it's a huge part of our brain, mostly inside, within our brain. And just, yeah, wiring different neurons together to make sure that, you know, vision is talking to motor and motor is talking to memory and memory is talking to uh, language and, and on and on like that. So it's imaging white matter and quantifying white matter is really truly uh, trying to map out 
the wiring diagram of the brain, or if you wish, the Google map of our brain. So okay. it's crucial to understanding anything about the brain. Okay. Now, I, I have this this question before me, and I, I don't have a clue what it means, so I'm just going to throw it out there and um, and have you define this for it, uh, for us. Um, but what is free water imaging, um, and how does your company apply that technology? How it, Does it differ from the MRI, or is that just part of the technology? I, I'm not sure on it's, that one. Yeah, it's a it's part of the technology. If you wish, imagine again analogy with the roads. And if you imagine you're on a road which which has a huge pothole or construction site, uh, so a, a big roadblock, and that could be from flooding. For instance, comparing this to free water, it could be from excessive rain, and suddenly there's flooding, and some roads are flooded with extra water on them. Um, Free water imaging is actually trying to quantify how much of this water is actually contaminating the road. Uh, and the analogy is quite powerful. It's something similar that's what's, what we're doing with imaging. So uh, when we're trying to reconstruct these 100,000 miles of axons and white matter, uh, anywhere there is abnormal white matter or abnormal wiring with more liquid, more water around the tissue, while our technology is sensitive to pick it up. So we can actually turn this into a number or into a map where you see hotspots or alterations of this number. Uh, a bit like if you, if you wish you had satellites taking images of our roads and you could highlight where are the roads blocked and where are the roads flooded. Uh, and so using this technology and non-invasive diffusion MRI, and the word diffusion says it. So it's, it's this water that we're trying to quantify with diffusion MRI. Then we can turn this into healthy-looking roads or uh, diseased-looking roads with some inflammation on them. So inflammation means more extracellular water, and so more extracellular water is this, is this free water term that we like to use now. Um, and so this is our, if you wish, indirect marker of neuroinflammation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that, that helps explain it. I like your, your analogies. It's, uh, it's easy to figure out a pothole and how that affects our lives. And stuff. Yeah. So, and how it affects, you know, uh, traffic along this yep. road and the traffic here is your electrical uh, signals navigating in, in these wires, trying to connect different neurons together. Exactly. Now, what can you tell us about the latest results from Immune Bio's clinical trial on Alzheimer's patients? Well, what we can tell you is that, well, of course, this is preliminary. We don't have all the data acquired yet. So this is on a subset of participants. But what we see is clearly um, very strong trends that something is happening. Huge changes in this free water marker. Uh, so reduction in free water from, from, you know, things I've never seen in, in experimental data in the past. So each participant, it's his own control. That is, we have uh, a baseline image before treatment, and we have different time points uh, once the treatment has started with different doses. 
And what we see is on their different uh, fiber pathways, these white matter pathways, there is a, a clear reduction in free water. Uh, overall, but also more in, more in particular on the language system. Uh, and so that attracted a, a lot of our interest. And it, at first sight, it wasn't uh, an obvious candidate. Why language and not, for instance, memory or another system? But what we seem to see in these preliminary results is a clear reduction of uh, inflammation on the language system, which we call the arcuate fasciculus. So uh, this is very encouraging, and we can't wait to have more uh, of the participants' data to really uh, have robust statistical test to confirm these preliminary findings. Wow, that is exciting. So um, in kind of talking language that my listeners may or may not understand, you know, aphasia really affects uh, people's speech. Would this be one of one of those symptoms that um, could maybe be controlled a little bit more or the, the symptoms reduced due to this? Exactly, and if if, maybe if CJ wants to jump in here, we, we, we do have also a neurologist in, in Australia that that um, explained to us what's happening in these patients, and, and we see also clear clinical manifestation of improvement of some of their ling- language skills or everyday uh, daily activities, and, and, and CJ is in better position than me to comment on this, but this is clearly very encouraging. Okay, um, yeah. CJ, do you want do you want to comment on that? Yeah, thanks, Max. You know, it's 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 interesting. We you know the way that we have measured inflammation in the past is we would have to do a lumbar puncture and collect cerebral spinal fluid, which has been very invasive, and uh, and and it tells us a little bit about inflammation, but it doesn't tell us where the real. And Max is being modest here. The real power in their technology is that not only can you measure it in a way that's not evasive, but you can see exactly where it's happening. And uh, to, to, to his comment earlier, what we found is in the very first six patients that we analyzed, a very large reduction in inflammation in the brain, and we could pinpoint exactly where that was occurring. And because it was occurring in a place that's important for Alzheimer's disease, and we could see changes there, and by the way, this is over a 12-week period, so a very short period of time, is just phenomenal as it relates to developing new technologies to assess therapies in Alzheimer's disease. And so this is, this is one of the things that we're trying to explore further. So what Max was saying, we had a, uh, uh, a, 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 a webinar where we discussed our preclinical findings uh, or these, uh, this interim data from the six patients, and you can, that whole webinar can be viewed at our website. But what, what he was referring to was the clinician came out ahead of time that has been treating most of these patients, and she just said some really remarkable changes in the patients that have more mild disease, and this really did correlate with the changes that we saw in the free water. So we think this is going to be a really powerful tool um, and, and it really does allow us to look at things in a way that have never been looked at before. So one of the things, and I'll let Max elaborate on this, is not only can they measure neuroinflammation, which is what we're interested in, but they can also measure whether or not these axons, this white matter, is changing over time. And there's a few key elements in there. But, but these, 
white matter changes actually occur pretty early in the course of the disease. And once they occur, that's when people start having cognitive problems. And so we think that this is going to be a much better measure because we're measuring the roads built um, as opposed to the cells that are lost. Once the cells have died, we don't think there's going to – we need a different type of therapy. These are regenerative therapies that you need. But, but as long as we can track the white matter changes and show that therapies are improving white matter, rebuilding those roads, then the connections between different parts of the brain can continue and reestablish and we think this will be a much more sensitive measure. And Max's company has the ability to not only look at the inflammation, the potholes per se, but to see whether or not you're building new roads and, and how those roads are being built. And we think this is just a, a really powerful uh, technology and, a, and an advancement in how we're going to assess patients in these trials. Because we can look at this in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that is fascinating. When you said 12 weeks, I just about fell off my chair because that really is um, astounding that you can see a difference in that short of a time frame. And then for it to be, you know, non, non-evasive. Um, I want to pull Max in here uh, for a second because, again, it sounds like he was being pretty modest in, in terms of what he's developed here. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of your um, MRI testing, is that something that is uh, available now to people, um, or is it only through the clinical trials that people can take advantage of your imaging? Um, thanks for the question. That's a tough one. It's, um, let's say, the, the, the way the images are acquired is available on almost any machine in uh, research hospital centers across the world. And this is a reason why, for instance, we can work with Australia and almost with any hospital in the world. What's, what's complicated is, is the image processing that goes on behind, which is still uh, unavailable easily. That's why, for, that's why a big reason why the, the company exists and my lab still exists, uh, where we do on our daily, uh, you know, our daily life is to improve and develop these software and processing techniques to quantify these images. Um, and so it's, it's a bit of a yes and no to your, your question. Um, okay. What's most commonly available, I would say, is for surgeries. So neurosurgeons do have access to this brain mapping technology to, have, to see the white matter around a brain tumor, for instance. And that's mm-hmm. available to them, and that's been FDA approved, and they can use it in the uh, operation room. But I would say for almost everything else in in the clinic, it's not routinely available yet. We're work- okay. actively working on this, try to you know close the gap and make it more uh, translated to uh, clinical routine. Okay, well that that makes sense. I mean, I I just know just. And I'm by far no brain surgeon or close to where you guys are in terms of things. But just in terms of general technology, you know, you can have it, but that doesn't mean you know how to use it. Um, and I think everyone's right. felt that through, through different things that they've downloaded over time or, you know, but I can it's, do this it's much with, of it. Uh, yeah. It's with trials like the one we're describing now with immune that hopefully in the future we can convince 
you know, the FDA and Health Canada that this should be incorporated as almost as a default when you do uh, brain imaging. And mm-hmm. we hope, I hope personally that that's a clear goal in my career. If I can do this within the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, that would be a, a big mission accomplished in terms of uh, translating the technology to to everybody. Oh, that would be that would be wonderful, and it would give people um, so much hope and insight at an earlier stage. And again, not being, right. uh, you know, being non evasive is is a huge huge factor. Um, I'm going to ask you to a silly question, but I I always think of inflammation attached to sugar, <laughs> and. Um, do you see anything within your studies in terms of maybe having people go off of sugar during this as well? Or am I just left field on this? And I'm going to throw this to CJ first and then come back to Mac. So, Lori, you are spot on. In fact, you know what I, I find interesting, and, uh, you know, this is just between you and me, uh, the, uh, what I find is the non-scientists understand inflammation better than the scientists that study anything but inflammation uh, that sort of intuitively understand it. And, uh, and yes, in fact, the link between uh, sugar is, is, and diet and exercise is really, really strong. In fact, one of the biomarkers that we use in our clinical trials that will allow people to get in besides that C-reactive protein that I was telling you about is uh-huh. hemoglobin A1C. And for those of you that don't know what hemoglobin A1C is, it's a, typically a marker of diabetes. But we know that people that have elevated uh, hemoglobin A1C or have diabetes have a, a very strong inflammatory um, drive. And we also know that anti-inflammatories do a really good job of, of, uh, of reducing symptoms in patients that have a hemoglobin, elevated hemoglobin A1C. So to your point, yeah, diet is really critical. Diet and exercise are very, very critical to overall health, brain health. And a lot of that is because of its effects on inflammation. So the extent to which you can uh, uh, have a very good healthy diet um, that you're exercising, um, those things will go a long way throughout life to keep your inflammation at bay. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, Max, anything that you wanted to add in to my question about sugar at all? Uh, I could. A little maybe opening a parenthesis, but we had a, and CJ was there last week, a, a webinar organized by Imika where, where we can actually image, again, with brain imaging, uh, how the brain consumes glucose, which is sugar, and how it consumes other uh, other things, and, and one of the hypotheses around is that maybe our neurons are not dead, or the cells are not dead yet, but they just have a hard time consuming that usual sugar that is the primary fuel. And when you start uh, to, to try therapies such as, you know, ketogenic diet that try to bring in complementary fuel to the brain, well, we actually can see that the white matter and the gray matter uses that fuel differently and may help certain uh, white matter and gray matter tissue t- to do better. And so this is really cutting-edge, exciting uh, research going on at the moment. That's, that's a bit of a related to the question you just asked. 
Okay, great. Thank you. Um, CJ, with your um, second trial coming up here um, in, in 2021, do you see it expanding at all to include diet and exercise as well? Or are you still in the initial stages of we've got to get this, this part done first with the imaging and get a better handle on that? So that's a great question. We don't put any restrictions in as it relates to not being able to do it. When you start adding different elements into it, it makes the trial really big and mm-hmm. difficult to, uh, uh, to enroll patients because you have to, the, the idea of the clinical program is to control for variables to make sure that the effect of your drug is really the effect of your drug and not something else. So if we, if we include that, then it gets really big and it's hard to enroll, and then you've got to sort of tease it apart. So that's not something that will start right away. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't keep patients from starting an exercise program and, and eating right. In fact, we encourage those things. I think for the patients that we're talking about, um, once you start getting to the stage where, excuse me, where you're more mild or moderate, um, those things will help. But, you're, but at that point, you're, the inflammation that you have, and I like to call it immune dysfunction, a dysfunctional immune system, probably needs a stronger uh, um, solution. And so we think that in combination, these things will work well, but you're definitely going to need something that targets the inflammation more directly. Okay, that that makes sense. And I can see how that would complicate things, but I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll ask them. And, and one of the questions that I know I hear comments, I should say, that I hear from people enrolled in these studies is, Oh, you know, I got kicked out because of this and I got kicked out because of that. And um, do people, um, let's say they're diagnosed um, with Alzheimer's disease, but maybe they have something else. Maybe they have diabetes or um, a heart condition. Is that going to kick them out of the study? What kind of criteria uh, do you have, CJ? Yeah, so so each clinical trial, the criteria is going to be a little bit different. And part of it is to try to keep the number of variables low so that we can really, so when we get to the end of the study, we know that it's our drug and not um, uh, something else, right? So a good example of this is if you're in the middle of your clinical trial, you start uh, taking two other drugs for whatever reason, and then you have, um, you know, an adverse event. We call it an adverse event. Maybe you have some, uh, you know, it could be a, any, something as serious as a heart attack or it could be a, a reaction. You know, then we, we don't know whether or not that's the drug, our drug, or whether or not it's another drug. So we, once, what we try to say is during the clinical trials that patients need to be stable in their medications, right? So we know that nothing's changed over time. Um, and usually there's some time frame before and after uh, in which that's the case. Mostly 60 to 90 days they need to, we say we, they need to be stable, which means they need to stay, they need to have been on the drug that they're coming in on for 90 days. The only, the other thing that is taken into account is how your drug may interact with drugs out there, right? So uh, there are many drugs that get broken down in the body. Uh, this is an example by the same mechanisms. And when you, when, when those drugs are put together, what happens is your body uh, uh, has to sort of compete for that and you get side effects. So mm-hmm. we're, some of these medicines are looking for drug interactions, um, and you may not be able to be on a drug because of those interactions, right? So that may be another thing. 
Um, from our perspective, for us, you know, our drug is pretty unique, at least in the way that it works. Um, it's highly specific, um, and we don't, we have not identified any drug interactions. And the other part this gets to is some of those other elements you're talking about, if they have diabetes or they have this. And a lot of times clinical trials will exclude those patients because they have other comorbid disease. Actually, for us, those are the patients that we want. It turns out that when you have inflammation as sort of this underlying pathology, you tend to have more comorbidities. In fact, when I'm talking to somebody, uh, let's say I'm talking to a, a physician, they say, all right, well, tell me what a patient with inflammation looks like. And I have a couple different criteria. My first one is, is do they have symptoms that don't really fit into a specific bucket, right? So they've got a disease, but they've also got these other things. And if they say yes, then I say, do they have multiple comorbidities? Oh, yes. And then the third thing is, is what do their blood inflammation levels look like? And typically those things all point to someone that has some sort of underlying inflammation. And the reason for that is when your immune system becomes dysfunctional, it goes after your weakest biological link. And that may be, that's different for everybody. So if you have 100 people that have immune dysfunction, you know, one person's biological link may be uh, a predisposition towards, towards uh, depression. Another person may be diabetes. And so that's sort of this underlying pathology of inflammation. And so for us, we are happy to take the patients that have these comorbidities. In fact, there are very few comorbidities that we don't allow into the study. Some of them are, are, are sort of have to have, like, uh, you know, someone has a, a life-threatening disease like active cancer. You know, that's a different story or an active infection. But for the most part, we, we have very uh, uh, flexible criteria as it relates to, to bringing people in the, in the study. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. I'm just going to ask Max if there's anything you'd like to add. No, this is good for me. Okay. Well, I really appreciate um, the time you guys have, have spent with us today. And again, I want to thank uh, Dr. C.J. Barnum and Dr. Deca I'm going to kill your name, Max, one more time. <laughs> Dr. De um, Decaco. I'm going to have you say it because I'm I'm so paranoid I'm going to screw it up. So, <laughs> Max, say your last name again for me. <laughs> Decoto. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, for our for our listeners, you can reach out to um, at either of these individuals for uh, CJ. You can go to um, their website at immunebio.com immunebio.com and if you'd like to email we're going to direct emails to D Moss that's David Moss the CFO at immunebio.com and they are also on Twitter you can find them there as well as LinkedIn and then for Max you can um, shoot him an email with any questions you have at M and then I'm going to spell his name so you'll know why I was tripping over it uh, D-E-S-C-O-T-E-A-U-X at amica.ca. And again, their website is uh, amica.ca. They're also on Twitter and also on LinkedIn. So I want to, again, thank everybody so much for um, 
for the show today. I found it very interesting, as I'm sure our listeners did. You can always go to Alzheimer's Speaks to find out more about our work. Have a blessed week, everyone. Bye now. Hey, everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.